0: Hi, everyone. This is Brooke James. Welcome to The Grief Coach. If it is your first time listening, I'm so glad to have you. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, I am so excited to have with us William Donaldson. He is an academic author and businessman out of Virginia. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: No, it's my pleasure, Brooke. Thank you for having me. It's an important topic we have to talk about tonight.
0: We have a lot to talk about, I'm excited. Why don't we have you introduce yourself so the audience can get a better sense of who you are and your perspective on where this conversation is coming from today. And then we'll get into our discussion.
1: I'd be happy to. And and I usually start my introductions by, I'm a businessman. I came from 35 years of running companies all around the world. I've taken company publics and bought them and sold them. And I'm now an academic teaching in business and and which gives me absolutely no reason to talk about estate planning or you know, end of life, medical issues, etc. But I'm also a father and son and brother who walked this path with my parents, Brooke. And that's what's so important is, um, I think our stories are very similar in that, as I started on this path, I realized very few people want to talk about this topic. And for whatever reason, and I've never really understood why I just needed to know more about this, I needed to go and explore, one of the things I talk about is I like to explore topics deeply and, and sort of longitudinally. And so I go down these rabbit holes. And when I was named executor of my parents' estate, I was like, wow, well, I don't know anything about death, really. Mm-hmm. And so I mm-hmm. went on a journey and was Surprised, what I learned.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm excited for you to tell the audience a little bit more about what you learned. But let's get into this a little bit more about the surprise and people not wanting to talk about it. And I think it sounds like you also felt this of like when you were faced um, with having to deal with this as you were named executor. I when we put my dad into hospice and then all of the aftermath when he uh, passed away, of like you really don't realize how much you don't know. And talk about what that experience was like and what surprised you.
1: Yes. So I was named executor of my parents' estate and classically, along with my brother Alec and classically, as we looked at the, the, what was then known, we thought, wow, we are they've done a lot. They had advanced medical directives and wills, which as you know, being in this field, very few people do even that part of it. Mm -hmm. But as I really researched it and started talking to them about it, they'd done the checklists of all the stuff you're supposed to do, but they didn't want to talk about it at all. They didn't Mm -hmm. want to, they didn't want to elucidate at all their thoughts or how they wanted this to all occur In fact, they sort of jokingly said, well, what does it matter? We're going to be dead. So you guys figure it out. And it's like, well, that's not good enough. That's
0: not nice. (laughs) No,
1: it's not. And as I went and talked to other people to try to get educated myself, I was like, wow, this is I was incredibly struck by the fact that mankind has been thinking about this for a long time and that 100 percent of us share this experience. And yet we don't want to talk about it. At all, and it just struck me as so strange that something we all share would be so taboo and and Mm -hmm. that we're really death phobic in this country and that just struck me as very, very odd. And I I, I think my parents were not any different than anyone else, they didn't want to talk about it, they were very private and they didn't want to worry me or my brothers and sisters, but that just didn't make any sense to me.
0: Yeah, and I think. What is so interesting is the people who are preparing the documents. So often the thought process is, you don't want to be a bother Mm -hmm. by by doing this. Did you see that a lot when
1: you were doing research for your book? I I absolutely did, and and that's why you know the people that did the checklist that they felt like, oh, I don't need to revisit this. But I talk about it in the book. The difference between the biological and and rational side of this. Well, checking the boxes. And that what was completely missing was the emotional and biographical side. How do you want this to end? With whom? What's your story? Tell me what you're thinking. Are you scared? Are you worried? And and my parents didn't want to talk about that at all. My brothers and sisters often didn't want to talk about it. And, and I was the odd person out talking about it. And as I met with people who did talk about these things and universally it was the, the hospice people
0: mm-hmm. and
1: some of the few end of life death doulas that were around then 20 years ago, they were like, yeah, nobody likes to talk about this. You're the weird one, <laughs> you know, but keep it up, keep talking yeah. because, and in fact, write a book because nobody wants to, to have these conversations and they're so important.
0: Yeah. And people who've listened to the podcast have heard me talk a lot about the importance of paperwork. Uh, I've had episodes directed specifically to it, but the anecdotes pepper in in most episodes because I think that that piece is so important. And I I wish that people could reframe it in their mind as it's an act of love to do Mm -hmm. this because it makes it so much easier for the people who have to deal with it. Because a big part of what happens is people you think like, well, would they want this? Like, what would they want? I don't want to upset them. Mm -hmm. So if there is no guidance and there has been no conversation, it's actually really stressful for the people who are left to deal with it.
1: Very stressful. And, you know, it's interesting, the statistics. I don't know if you're familiar with the Conversation Project, but they're just a terrific group. They're wonderful. You know, and 53% of the people would say they would be relieved to have these conversations and 93% say it's important and that they should have these and yet we don't have them. And it's funny, I found that one of the, the people that begged me so much to write the book was a woman who has four children, and she said, please get the book out because they won't talk to me. She's ready to talk, but they're not. So it's not just the, the elder um, generations, it's often the children or brothers and sisters who don't want to talk about it. And my hope in writing the book was that, that people found a story that was, it was human. It wasn't the medical issues. It wasn't the estate planning issues and the checklist. It was just a story about basically, you know, a bunch of knuckleheads <laughs> stumbling towards the finish line and asking some really important questions and the love and certitude and, and liberation that came from having those discussions was just, was a gift. And it's yeah. funny, I've done a, a go ahead.
0: No, you finish your point, and then I'll ask. I was done.
1: I've done a lot of work and research with a grief counselor, um, Sherman Lee, and one of the things that's clear is the grief profile is dramatically flattened if you have these conversations. What people regret is that they didn't have these conversations. What they didn't know and what wasn't said it it doesn't make it any less sad, and you don't miss your parents or the the loved one any less. It's just that you don't have that huge regret of what wasn't said and if you have all that said in advance then the end becomes a a loving experience that you can you can celebrate
0: yeah yeah so like let's talk more about the emotional piece because Mm -hmm. again people I think can logistically wrap their brain around like oh yeah I should probably know what medical directives my loved one wants I should we should know like Mm -hmm. where the will is and we should have some conversations about that. Like people can wrap their brain around that more. Mm -hmm. But what um, so interested me the first time you and I talked was you have this additional lens in your writing that emotional piece. Can you share guidelines? Can you share things that you found helpful to you? But I'd really like to dig into that piece because that is what I think makes a big difference.
1: Absolutely. So, so two things. One is that it just takes time. I mean, you have to tease away, you have to get good at it. These are hard discussions. And so you have to start early and you have to, to get to know your parents and or whoever the person is and, and tease your way through and get that level of trust. And the other is don't let the the biological and rational side trick you because you've got to make the extension to the emotional and biographical side. So the example I'll give you is the decision in an advanced medical directive to not insert a feeding tube. Mm -hmm. You have to also make the, the extension of that, which is, okay, that means you're denying nutrition and you're starting the dying process. So an example is a family that I worked with, they had planned that. They didn't want a feeding tube, but they didn't fill their daughter in on it, one of the daughters. She was named as the, the medical power of attorney. She came in and said, oh, no, mom and dad wouldn't want that. Feed them intravenously. You, you can't have it both ways. And, and if you don't have these discussions and think about what those emotional experiences are going to be, you'll miss that. And and that was quite a bone of contention
0: yeah. in that
1: family, as you might imagine.
0: I mean, we had, it wasn't a feeding tube, but something similar with my dad when he was in hospice. And I was like, oh, he, there's, we don't need to go into details, but there was an opportunity for him to have antibiotics that would have been helpful for one thing, but probably would have prolonged his life by a few days. Uh, and so my first instinct was to say yes we should do this but then went and looked at the paperwork thought about it thought about the conversations him and i had had about it where he his worst nightmare was to be like a vegetable was how he put it Mm -hmm. and so then had to be like no this isn't what he wanted and to know that and know we had had those conversations and like why he felt like that like made such a big difference but a lot of people don't have those conversations
1: they don't. They don't. And, and that's the point of my book is don't miss the opportunity. When when my mother's time came, she died after my father, but we had had all these conversations for 10, 12 years, and she was prepared. She had been through his death. And as she was being given all the medical conditions by her doctor, which were all manageable under you know modern healthcare, I looked in her eyes and I could tell she was just saying, this is my ticket out. <laughs> right? I'm not, I don't want any of it. And I was okay with that. All my brothers and sisters were okay with that. And if you don't have those conversations, those become very, very hard times. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And you doubt yourself. There's a lot of doubt and it's just so much more emotionally charged when you're yes. facing it in person versus as a hypothetical.
1: That's and when you're facing it at a critical time, right? Yes. If you have these conversations when you're reasonably healthy and there's no there's no specter on the horizon, then you can talk about them sort of intelligently and non-emotionally, but if you do it in a charged environment at the foot of a hospital bed, that's a really hard time to start these conversations.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit more? I think you just said something about your mom, of like she had witnessed your dad dying. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like she was a little bit more ready to have some of these conversations. And you also knew kind of what to ask and mm-hmm. what to be on the lookout for. Yep. And I think that's a really common experience that people have. But once you go through it, you know, but what advice would you want to share with the people who don't know because they haven't gone through it yet?
1: Well, my father went first and and it just it just takes time. And I think there's a, you know, we had to to peel through the, the layers with him. He's fiercely independent, fiercely private, didn't want anybody you know, to fuss over him. And it took a while for him to get to the point where he was accepting. And you know what, Brooke, I think one of the things about it was he didn't want to let us down. He didn't want to say, I've had all the fun I can stand. I'm tired mm-hmm. and I'm old and I'm ready to go. I think he felt that was going to be letting us down, and when we finally broke through that, and he got comfortable saying, "I'm just ready," then then it it became rel- not easy, and it wasn't fun. But now we all knew wh- where we stood, and and it was we made that breakthrough before you know we needed to do anything medically about it. But it finally got to the point where I, we kind of broke through with him. And, and he and I had a great session where it's just like, it's OK. I know you're tired. You're in pain. You're kind of miserable. Your quality of life is terrible. I get it, Pop. We all get it. Now let's talk about what we can do to make this a better time. And And that changed everything when we started talking about that. And so yeah. he was ready.
0: So what are, for people who haven't done this, some of the things that you do talk about to make it a better time, as you say?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, and I don't want to come across as an authority, which I'm not. I've done this twice with two people, and, and I think everyone is a little different. And so mm-hmm. you just have to look for the opening. So one of the things I talk about in the book is, number one, start early. Talk early and talk often. And it, it got to be a joke between my parents. We'd I'd show up for dinner and we'd be talking, and I'd say, So let's talk about end of life things. And they're like, What are you trying to get rid of us? And I was like, <laughs> No, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page with this. And then it got to be a little bit of a joke, but that was actually the sign of progress. Yeah. Right? That was a sign that they were getting comfortable talking about it. And so start early, start and talk often. And then share all of that information. Make sure you share that with everyone.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, if we can go back to the piece about emotions and stories and those conversations, getting Mm -hmm. into legacy a little bit. So I had Rabbi Steve Leder on probably like a year ago now, uh, and he talks about this concept of an ethical will of, Mm -hmm. okay, you have your will for your possessions, but then what are like the lessons that you want people to take? Yes. Um, with them. And so that kind of sounds like some of the stuff that you have done with those conversations around emotions and stories, but I want to just dive into some of your thoughts on that. And then we can go from there.
1: Absolutely, Brooke. And the thing that absolutely changed my rearranged the molecules in my mind when I when I talked about it is say going on this journey of talking with people about death and, and trying to understand it, I met with someone who studies death traditions around the world. And she mm-hmm. told me about an African tradition. And she said, in that, in this particular tradition, the philosophy is that the first death, the physical death is just a first death, just a first manifestation. And the time you truly die is when the last person on earth speaks your name or thinks about you. Mm-hmm. And that just set me free. It was like, okay, now I get it. Uh, it, I don't have to worry about mom and dad dying. Yes, that's going to be sad, but it is inevitable. What I have to worry about is the life they live up until that time. And what we say before then, that changed everything. And it, it fits in with the hospice belief that you know the opposite of, of, of life is not death. The opposite of death is being born. And what life is what you do in between those two polar events.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, that philosophy changed everything as we thought about it. And and I believe it's true because I gave a talk yesterday or no, Friday at a at a retirement home on the book. And I told the people there, I said, my parents are as live today as they were yesterday or 10 years ago because they're here in this room with me. I'm talking about it and you're learning about them, mm-hmm. right? and And that was just such a cool, very liberating thought for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the, when we think about like legacy, it is that like, what are the lessons that you're teaching other people in your book? Do you, when you're coaching people or guiding them on how to have these conversations, is that a piece of what people could expect to see in your writing?
1: I think they'll see, what I hope they'll see is just the, themselves in the stories of my parents or me and my brothers and what we went through. You know, it's an interesting story about the book, Brooke. I had intended to add after each chapter, what, the, you know, section about what the, the experts say, what the doctors say, what the death doulas say, what the end of life caregivers say. And my publisher, when he read the book it was just the story and he said don't add any of it let's go to to market just with the story of just you and your parents because that way they can just see it's not a whole bunch of of phd's and doctors talking to them it's just somebody telling a story mm-hmm. and saying hey it's all going to be okay you're going to yeah. get through this and you're going to the the joy and and liberation and gift that's going to come from doing it is well worth it
0: yeah And what do you, in your experience, what has been, uh, like, I have a theory on this, but curious what yours is, of what is the, like, reluctance of people to not want to have these conversations? And where does that come from?
1: Yeah, one, I think it's just culturally, we don't, we've all been told, don't talk about that. And that's rude, or it's, it's not right. I think again my parents and and you know very private don't want people knowing their business and then don't want to be a burden to anybody and don't want to burden them with their feelings and so I think we just keep we have a culture that keeps it all bottled up rather than mm-hmm. embracing it and and realizing that this is inevitable. let me tell you mm-hmm. the statistics are pretty clear a hundred percent of <laughs> us are going through that door
0: yeah and then what do you think people's reluctances of um the children, the like the people who they have to have those conversations with. Well,
1: again, you know, a very small sample size. But as I've talked to people and talked to my parents, I think they didn't want to burden me and my brothers and sisters. And, oh, we don't want you to worry unnecessarily. And. And, and no, but of, it, of
0: like the brothers and sisters, like of not wanting to have those conversations.
1: Well, actually, I was very lucky there. You know, most of mine, part of them were just, oh, you know, it's it's just take care of it. And I was like, no, 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 you're going to be a part of this because we all need to hear it. And, and you know, I just I think we're raised in a culture that just doesn't want to embrace it and doesn't want to talk about it. And there are cultures around the world that really do lean into it and mm-hmm. and realize that it's a it's a part of life.
0: Yeah. And I think what ends up happening is it's such a disservice because when you do have those conversations ahead of time, it allows you, if you're dealing with an expected death or someone who's declining, like you have done all of the logistical pieces so you can focus on the emotional piece. Yes. Like, which I think that's huge. So like we had some stuff we were trying to figure out with my dad specifically, but like a lot of it, like we knew what his wishes were. And so like, I really saw that given not, there were some hiccups in there, but like having the logistical piece figured out, did allow for, and does allow for, for like, I've seen with other people in my family, friends of mine, like, excuse me, that you can just focus on your grieving, which allows you to have like grief is such a complicated thing Um, and it takes a long time. I think a lot of people are like, well, what do I have to do? So it's done. And I can go back to normal. It's like, no, no, that's not how this works. (laughs) um, Like having a logistical piece that does allow you to focus on the emotional. Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice um, for people on working through their grieving process? Like you've lost both of your parents. So I don't know what was helpful for you. Obviously, like that the reason I started this podcast, I told you the first time we talked was because I couldn't believe no one knew how to talk about this. Right. And I couldn't relate to a lot of the resources that I was finding. Um so just any advice or things that were helpful for you as you went through that process yourself.
1: Well, Brooke, I think you've just said it, and that is, you know. it it is a natural process. It is, it's inevitable. And to avoid talking about it is kind of silly. So just start. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to give people the courage to say, okay, this is just a a knuckleheaded businessman. He's not a doctor. He's not anybody special. He just started talking to his parents and and it all Mm -hmm. worked out okay. You know, were we great at it? Did we make mistakes? Sure. I mean, I I talked about it in the book. There are times I wanted to wring their necks, (laughs) but you know, accelerate the process for them. But that's right. just that's just human beings. So again, talk early, talk often, revisit it. People change their mind. Make sure you have these conversations because as I said, the, the grief specialist that I've worked with said, it just changes the grief profile dramatically. Doesn't mean you're any less sad or you don't miss that person, but you don't regret what you didn't say. You don't regret the things that could have been. and that's that's the message i want to get out
0: well and i think the like regret and doubt pieces are such a big part of grief absolutely like so like i'm dealing with something i told you before we started recording but i'm not going to say it on air of that i would love to ask my dad about and i can't Mm -hmm. and so like wherever you can um have conversations about just like general even like philosophy or like family stories and family traditions Mm -hmm. I'm like why did we start doing x y and z like you kind of for certain pieces like you know kind of the advice they would give you but having just general conversations not only about death but about life like allows you as you move forward like in your own life, after physically someone is no longer here, like that provides a lot of comfort too.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you can tell us a little bit about like, what was the process like to write the book? Because I started podcast thinking it was going to be a book. And then I was like, no, no, that's actually really hard to write a book. So I'm (laughs) going to not do that. (laughs) So what was that process like for you?
1: Well, it's funny as I was going through this, several people, particularly in the, the end of life community, the coordinator of a, a retirement home, a hospice coordinator, a doctor said, You should really write a book because not many people talk about this stuff and you seem to have learned a lot through it. So that got me thinking about it. And then my sister, Byrne, when my father, we were gathered for his, when he was in hospice and, and, I mean, he, she said, You really should. You got us all through this. You helped us. Yeah, too. So she really got me going. The book is titled Estimated Time of Departure. And my father was a pilot and an mm-hmm. aeronautical engineer. And pilots have to file a flight plan, right? Mm-hmm. Pilots have to plan everything out. What? Where are they going to go? What's the route? How much gas? What happens in the case of weather? What altitude are they going to fly at? And it just struck me as a perfect metaphor for this, is that's exactly what we're talking about, <laughs> getting ready for this departure. And all of the chapters are are themed as travel, So sort of getting ready in the departure lounge, taxiing out, you know, landing, clearing right, I customs. I love that. Yeah. To try to send that message to people. And then it was just, you know, I had the, the idea for the book. I started, you know, putting chapters down. I started pecking away at them bit by bit. But then my publisher asked me to move another book that I had up in front of it, a business book. And I did that and got that launched. And then we came back to it. So it, it took a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: then when COVID hit and we couldn't go anywhere or do anything, <laughs> it was just like, okay, I'm just going to finish this and, and get it out. So
0: you're one of those people who actually wrote a book. So when he was in COVID, we're like, I'm going to write the next great. <laughs> but you did it. <laughs> yes. um, so you've kind of touched on this already, but what are some messages that you hope people glean from your book? Because I think what happens is, we've talked about this a little bit, but like people are scared to, to have these yeah. conversations. I think a lot of the time, because they're like, well, if I talk about it, then they're going to die. And it's like, <laughs> they're going to die anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but anything, any, messages that you have that you hope people um, internalize when they read your book? Well,
1: that's precisely why the book is, is the way it is. Just the story of a guy and his family and brothers and sisters. They're nobody special. You don't have to be somebody special. You don't have to have an advanced degree. You don't have to have a medical degree. You don't need permission. You don't need to go chant under a pyramid or anything to figure this stuff out. It's just deciding that this is something I want to do and I want to know and I can figure it out. And the love and feelings that come from having those discussions, you'll figure it out. And then there are resources available to help you. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: just get started.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing. I think people, for some people, it's so daunting. They don't know where to start. And what your book does of breaking it down into more digestible chunks, I think is so helpful.
1: Well, and, and hopefully it's a conversation starter. I, one of the people that came to my talk two weeks ago came up and said, I called my father on the way, you know, from to this event and told him we're going to talk about this. And I just ordered four books and I'm sending them to him and my brothers and mm-hmm. sisters, and we're going to talk about it. So if it's just, an introduction that gets people talking, a book group that reads it and says, Hey, these are important discussions. Don't miss them. That's the message I wanted to get out.
0: Yeah. And I think for listeners, like early in episodes, when I would be imploring people to like have conversations with their family about where is the will, like, what does it say? Where is the advanced directive? What does it say? Because like, and people would ask me, they'd be like, Brooke, what can I do for you? Like, and I'd be like, talk to your parents about their will and they were like I'm sorry what (laughs) like but I would tell podcast listeners like say like my friend had to deal with this and was talking about it like so you and I were, were the audience's friend and we had to deal with it and like just talk to your family that way like oh my friend brought this up and I think it's important we talk about it I think that's a much easier way for some people to bring it up. Right. Because like, I, I want to be respectful of the fact that the nerves are like real, like people mm-hmm. are scared to talk about this. So if we can at least make it more approachable for one listener, then I'll be right.
1: happy. Well, yeah. You know, when you, you've you read the book, and that's what I hope readers will see is there were some really funny parts in there. And it just shows how, how silly, you know, my parents could be and I could be and and it was just life with these, these are not always just dour and you know, morose conversations, there was some fun built into it. There was joy. There was love, even though it was, that we're talking about a sad topic and a hard topic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so if people want to buy the book, where do they buy it?
1: So it's available on for pre-order. It actually drops on December 7th officially, but at Amazon books, a million Barnes and Noble, any of the major sessions they they can just go and look for Estimated Time of Departure. My website is estimatedtimeofdeparture.com. Okay. And I'd love to, to hear from them and help any way.
0: Okay, amazing. And then I guess that's it. Thank you so much. This is great. I really enjoyed speaking with you. And I think that like this is such an important topic. So I hope it's that it's listeners go buy the book and read it. It's
1: my great pleasure, Brooke. And thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, and thank you, everyone, uh, for listening. You can find us online at griefcoach.co and on social at the underscore griefcoach. If you liked uh, the podcast, please go write a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it helps people who are looking for this type of content find it. If you have a mean review you want to write, you don't need to do that publicly, and you can keep that to yourself or shoot me an email directly. Because that's a lot more constructive than writing a negative review. So thank you so much, and I'll talk to you guys soon.